So we'll continue in this, this class, uh, considering Jesus as priest. This will be part two from what, was, what I started last week. And this, for this class, I'm primarily using a resource by Benjamin Glad, his book, From Adam and Israel to the Church. I, I thought that book was really helpful as I've thought through Christ as prophet, priest, and king. So I want to draw out some of those things for us to, to think about as we look at scripture and consider um, what the Bible says about Christ as our faithful and sufficient priest. So just some review from last week and the past few weeks. We've been talking over and over and saying over and over uh, that Adam and Eve were functioning as priests in the garden, in God's garden, his sanctuary in Eden. And their goal as priests was to expand God's glory to the ends of the earth. Um, and we've talked about, you go back and listen to some of the earlier classes, sort of building up this, this theme. Uh, Christ as priest isn't a new idea. And even in the Old Testament, the priests that were put in place weren't a new idea. But this, the, uh, the identity markers of a priest and the function of a priest you see even in the garden. When it uses some of the same Hebrew language for Adam and Eve and what they were supposed to do in the garden as it does for priests in the temple, in the sanctuary. So it's just really interesting to see that connection. But Adam and Eve were to function and to minister in God's garden. <clears throat> they were to expand God's glory to the ends of the earth. And they failed to do that, of course, because of their, their sin and disobeying God. They failed to remove all unclean things from God's presence. They failed to expand the paradise of Eden, which was their commission. Like Adam and Eve as well, Israel was to deal with and get rid of all forms of sin and filth from their community. And also they were supposed to mediate God's presence to the surrounding nations. So this, these identity markers of a priest that you see in Adam and Eve and the language there, we also see that of um, of Israel as, as a nation and even the Levites, the priests within the nation. But Israel was supposed to deal with sin, like Adam and Eve were supposed to deal with Satan. Adam was supposed to deal with him, get him out of the garden. Israel was also supposed to rid all forms of sin and filth from their community. And they failed. They failed to live out God's intention for them as a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19.6 says. Now, when we transition to the New Testament, Jesus' ministry is highlighted as a faithful priest. He exposes and expels wickedness and rebellion from the created order, and he brings God's glory to the nations. So he does what Adam and Eve failed to do, what Israel failed to do. All these things were preparing for the great high priest. All these failures were to point us to the need for a great high priest who would be obedient and do what God had commissioned him to do. Um, Hebrews 7.26 says, It was indeed fitting that he, Jesus, should have such, or that we should have such a high priest, Jesus, who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. <clears throat> now, the New Testament and specifically, the book of Hebrews talks about how Jesus is, a, is superior in, in every way. He's superior to the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices. 
Uh, he's superior to the Old Testament rites. He's superior to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Right? So Jesus' power, superiority, and exaltation over the Old Testament system is revealed in ways that maybe we haven't considered. I want to talk about some of those ways this morning. So all of the Bible, Hebrews, New Testament, even Old Testament, all of the Bible is pointing us to Jesus as the faithful high priest, Jesus as the Lamb of God, which we'll talk about, Jesus as uh, the one to which all of the Old Testament laws and feasts and rituals were pointing. Right? They all find their fulfillment in him. <clears throat> now, first, I want to consider Jesus as the end time temple. Jesus as the end time temple. You'll see that on your handout there. Jesus as the end time temple. <clears throat> now, John's gospel explicitly connects the person of Christ with Israel's tabernacle. Someone read John 1.14 for us. John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this phrase dwelt among us can be translated as does anybody know tabernacle it can be translated as tabernacle it it recalls to mind really the wilderness wanderings of israel god told israel to build a temple so that while they were wandering through the wilderness he could dwell among them exodus 25 8 says and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So when, when the Bible uses this language in John 1.14, it's, it's intentional. It's meant to draw out something that was present before. Um, it's meant to, to show that what's, what's happening with Christ, who he is and what he's doing is, is actually the fulfillment of something that was spoken before. 1 Peter 2.4 says, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, do you ever wonder why Jesus is described as a living stone? It's a really, it's an interesting phrase, a living stone. The tabernacle was the promise of God's presence with his people. As God's glory filled Israel's tabernacle in the the New Testament, the glory of God tabernacled among the people in Jesus. The physical temple was never meant to be an end in itself. It was temporary. It It was a type. By definition, a type terminates in the antitype. Uh, it was a it was a shadow of something to come. <clears throat> I've used this uh, sort of picture. If I'm coming, if the sun is behind me and I'm coming around a corner and someone's waiting for me on the other side of the corner of a building, they may see my shadow before they see me. 
they can recognize it's me. Maybe they can make out some features. If I have a hat on or a book bag or something, they can say, oh, okay, that's, that's Dez. They see my shadow, they recognize it's me, but then when I show up, they're not looking to the shadow to, to identify me. They, they have me in front of them. They have, they have the, 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 the substance, there's a shadow and there's, there's actually me. The, the temple in the Old Testament was, was a type. It was uh, to uh, vaguely point to something, uh, primarily Christ, as, as the, the fullness or the, the fulfillment. <clears throat> the shadow disappears when the reality comes. The temple was a temporary residence that partially housed God's glory. It was a symbol of something or someone greater to come. Now, even Solomon, when he built the temple in, in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 8.27, even he says when he's building the temple, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So even he recognized when he was building the temple that it was only a temporary structure. God can't be housed in, in, a, in a building of, of stone. And so he, he says that. He knew that one day that temple that he built would go away. And as a living stone, Christ, the true temple of God, would come. Christ is the uh, fullest expression of God's glory on the earth. So Jesus wasn't a static stone. He wasn't a temple built by Israel's stones that would be destroyed one day. He was the living stone, the incarnation of Israel's glory. Right? <clears throat> so all of these, the, as I mentioned, the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices and even the temple itself was pointing to Christ. It was preparing for, for Christ. Next on your handout there, the temple cleansing. Before I jump there, any, any thoughts or questions? You said Christ is the fullest expression of what? Uh, he's the fullest expression of, uh, what did I say? God's glory on earth. Yep. The fullest expression of God's glory on earth. <clears throat> Okay, so moving down on your, your handout there, the temple cleansing. And we talked about this last week a little bit, but I want to draw it out a little more today. Now, in his book, Glad reminds us that as the perfect priest, Christ begins to expel and do away with, get rid of all forms of idolatry and rebellion that contaminated the created order. So Christ uh, and his first coming, yes, he was cleansing a temple, which we'll talk about, but even that um, was a small picture of what Christ would do on the whole earth eventually, and which he will do when when he returns. But we see a a glimpse of it in the temple cleansing. Again, we talked about this uh, last week a bit, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke put the temple cleansing event at the beginning of Passion Week. Um, John, on the other hand, narrates the event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You see that in John 2, 13 to 25. It's not 
clear, um, and some scholars sort of go back and forth on this, but it's not clear if Jesus cleansed the temple once or twice during his ministry. I'm sure New Testament scholars can make a good case, probably for both. But either way, we can be confident that this event is crucial in each gospel for, for good reason. Now, instead of being a place to worship the Lord and to welcome the Gentiles, which was supposed to be the function of the temple, you see that in Mark eleven seventeen, the temple in Jerusalem had become a place of pride, a, a place of financial gain for the nation. God's original intent was for his presence to go forth to all nations, not to be hoarded and sold as profit. And we've seen this a little in, even recently in Pastor Ron's sermon. <clears throat> Someone read Mark eleven sixteen for us. Go to Mark eleven sixteen. Jesus, as a faithful and dutiful high priest, and this he drives out the money changers. All right. So, so someone read that for us. Mark eleven sixteen. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Okay. So he he drives out these these money changers, and it says he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. You get this idea that this event, it took some time. It took some time to drive the people that were scandalizing the temple to get them out. And it would have taken some time to keep others from coming in to do the same thing. So Jesus says he's 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 pushing, driving. He's made this um, this uh, whip and he's driving them out. And then he's also keeping others from. I'm sure you can just imagine sort of others at the gate like this is what we do you know, in the temple, that this is normal for us. This is, this is business for me. And so they come ready to sort of work in a sense. And Jesus is keeping them out and driving the others out at the same time. You, you get sort of this picture that it's, it's something that took some time. Jesus, with zeal, he did this work. This temple, it was supposed to be, again, called a house of prayer for all peoples. But it was prevented from uh, being called this house of prayer. It was, it was prevented uh, by these scandalous profiteers. They were preventing the nations from coming, um, essentially because those who were coming didn't have the means to be able to pay for, for sacrifices. <clears throat> the Jewish leader representing the nation are anti-priests. Instead of obeying God's law and keeping um, the nation and her temple from defilement, the Jewish leaders promoted greed and lust for power. They were defiling God's people and her sanctuary. Instead of mediating God's presence to the nations, the Jewish leaders roped off the temple from the Gentiles. <clears throat> Everett Ferguson, in his book, Boundaries of Early, or rather, Backgrounds of Early Christianity, he gives us some context to help us understand what's actually happening in this, this event. He says, there was an inscription that everybody coming to the temple saw and knew. It was an inscription that separated Gentile proselytes from ethnic Jews. So it was an inscription on uh, these, above these pillars, there was a sort of piece of stone and there was inscribed on this stone, these words, that this is what it said. 
No man of another nation is to enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which follows. So this is this was the norm. Everyone coming to the temple recognized this inscription in stone. It was to make a separation between, again, proselytes and ethnic Jews. So it was like a yellow caution tape to warn people. If you come beyond this point, you're not an ethnic Jew, you'll have to pay for your own death. It'll be on you if if you do that. The point was that God-fearing Gentiles, though they were converted to Judaism, were treated as second-class citizens. They couldn't come as far as ethnic Jews could. The Jewish leaders in an attempt, and their attempt, to preserve the sanctity of the temple kept Gentiles at arm's length from the temple. And in doing that, they ended up defiling the very place that they wanted to protect. It's, it's ironic that they, in their own wisdom, see, well, let's, let's do this to make this separation. And it's really, <clears throat> it's not faithful to what the Old Testament scriptures call them to, It was pride. It was selfishness. It was wanting to put oneself first. Um, And so they ended up betraying their own intentions. Now, it is ironic that this, this happens. But I think when we look at our own hearts, we can probably find that same yellow caution tape in, in some areas. Those boundaries that keep out those who don't share maybe our same uh, precise theology on secondary issues. Maybe we only invite people to church who look like us or think like us in very specific ways. People who are of the same maybe social standing as we are. Maybe we look at people funny and we judge them in their hearts because we're judging based off of their appearance. Um, we, we, we can have inscription on stone in our own hearts when we uh, fellowship or choose not to fellowship with certain types of people. Um, so that's just something we want to be on on guard for. And we'll, we'll talk about this a little later, but we have the same um, commission through Christ to mediate God's presence to, to the nations. And we, we want to look at this as a, a warning, as a caution for our own hearts as well. <clears throat> We, we don't want to have that, that disposition. In judging Israel's physical temple, Jesus, the perfect high priest, clears the way for the establishment of the end time temple, where outcasts gather and enjoy God's presence. So instead of dwelling partially in a building, God's glory has descended in his son. Now, those who have union with Christ become a part of this new temple, regardless of Uh, ethnicity, social status, um, bank account. Uh, They have union with Christ and therefore, as uh, Peter says, are built up into the temple uh, of God. Peter uses this language of Christians being stones built up into the temple with Christ himself being the cornerstone. And so it's a very interesting picture there, but also really, really encouraging as Christ accomplishes this, this work. So any thoughts there before we jump to the, the next point? <clears throat> so I have a question. Yeah. 
question. Yep. So um, there were Gentiles that were converted to Judaism. Yes. And uh, but there were second classes right. in the back. Um, and that inscription on the temple that if they went in there, they'd be put to death. Yeah. Um, did that start in the beginning, they had that? Or did that come with after a while? Did they put that, you know, want to condemn people to death? Yeah. Right away? Yeah, that's a good question. <clears throat> that's a good question. I'm, I'm not really sure exactly when that inscription practice started. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I have to look it up and tell you. Yeah. So obviously, then when Christ came, <clears throat> right? No yeah. One was exactly. And that's the. You see that type of language over and over um, in, in Revelation, where it's uh, tribe, tongue, nation, people, worshiping around the throne. And so this, this separation, the separation man from man and God from man is dealt with in the person, Jesus Christ. And you also see that in Ephesians chapter 2, where it talks about this separation being brought down between Jews and Gentiles. There is now one new man, uh, namely in Christ as, as the new man. So, <clears throat> yeah, there's, a, there's a, a turning, a reconfiguring, a turning upside down of how uh, we typically view uh, the community of Christ and how some, even in Jesus' day, w- would view it. There would be this, this distance, this, this separation. Uh, you're not like us. You're not an ethnic Jew. Abraham's not your father, which Jesus himself condemns um, some, some for saying this, uh, that <clears throat> it's not union with Abraham that makes you a believer, it's union with, with Christ. Uh, so, yeah. <clears throat> yep. Any other thoughts, questions? Yeah, yep. <clears throat> yep. Certain rites and circumcision. Yeah, he uses that language. Who has bewitched you, conned you, deceived you, O Galatians? If anyone comes preaching, like you said, another gospel. So he doesn't see this as a nuance of the gospel. He says, this is another gospel. And then he goes on to say, um, essentially, uh, may wrath be upon them <clears throat> yeah so yep so yeah it's interesting they found that stone i saw oh yeah yeah i kind of yeah. just pulled this up nice um so it's written in greek so i think that could tell us something about hmm. when it you, you, but it says no foreigner may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary in the enclosure whoever is caught on himself shall be put blamed for the death which will does it give you the around the year that that was? It just said two millennia ago. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. But which would, I mean, just going by that round guesses. Yeah. yeah. Maybe hadn't been there forever, but yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, that was the first thing. Yeah, you, you mentioned Ephesians two. I'll just read it. It says uh, in, in verse eleven. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, 
and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Yeah. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Yeah, thank you for reading that. Yep. That's what I had in mind. So it's, it's clear, right? There, there aren't um, these distinctions uh, concerning union with, with, with Christ. It's one new man in Christ. Yep. Yep. All right, let's jump down to the next section. A better priest and sacrifice. A better priest and sacrifice. All right, so we looked at Jesus as the end time temple. Jesus and his temple cleansing, now Jesus as a better priest and sacrifice. Now, as we've seen in, <clears throat> in past classes, the Old Testament presents uh, the Garden of Eden as the first sanctuary, again, where Adam and Eve dwelt with the Lord. Our first parents sinned, and they were stained with guilt and sin. Uh, we know that God cannot tolerate any form of sin. His eyes are uh, pure than to look upon sin. But God clothes Adam and Eve with a a garment of skins or garments of skin. And it's interesting that when they do sin, uh, they hide, God comes looking for them. And we see that in Genesis 3, that sort of, that that narrative. Uh, God eventually clothes them with, with these skins. And when you think about this, this, it assumes something has died. Right. Where does the skin come from is, is the question. Where does these garments of skin come from? It assumes something has died. A sacrifice was needed to make things right. So apparently an animal sacrifice was, was offered. You see this theological uh, per- perspectives on, on some commentators as they look at Genesis and draw out, draw out some of these, these themes. <clears throat> that animal sacrifices in Israel and that system isn't new to Israel after they became a nation, but it was something that was already in place. Now, the book of Leviticus outlines the way in which a righteous and holy God can dwell with sinful individuals in the tabernacle. Leviticus 9 shows us sacrificial rituals. So there was expiation, which were burnt offerings, there was consecration, grain offerings, and then there was fellowship with God, peace offerings, expiation, consecration, and fellowship with God. Now, let me have someone read Leviticus 9, 18 through 23. Leviticus 9, 18 through 23. Whoever wants it, just say, I, and then you can read it for us. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Is it Leviticus 9? Yep. All right, I have it on the wrong <clears throat> 18 verse 23. Yep. He slew also the bullock and the ram for a sacrifice of peace offering, which was for the people. And Aaron's sons presented unto him the blood, which he sprinkled upon the altar round about. 
and the fat of the bullock and of the ram, the rump, and that which covered the inwards of the kidneys, and the fall above the liver. And they put the fat upon the breast, and he burnt the fat upon the altar. And the breast and the right shoulder of Aaron weighed for a wave offering before the Lord and the Lord's dominion. And Aaron lifted up his hand for the people and blessed them. And he down from offering of the sin offering and the burnt offering and peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. Okay. So they do these things as the Lord commanded them. And it says, after they, after they do these things, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. <clears throat> now, in Glad's commentary, he says that uh, sin had to be dealt with before the worshiper could enjoy fellowship with God. The one key purpose of the temple rituals was to remove sinful contaminants that defile the worshiper. It's, it's interesting that, <clears throat> you know, it's towards the beginning of the year and people, we usually want to do our sort of Bible reading plan. And, you know, we go through Genesis, Exodus is really exciting. And then <laughs> we get to <laughs> Leviticus. <laughs> We're like, I can't. <laughs> it's, it's, but it's really interesting when we, view Leviticus um, in the right context and really if we read Leviticus with the lens that says God is holy and this is what was necessary for God to dwell with his people then you start to feel the weight of, of, of Leviticus and you, you get through it <laughs> but Leviticus is filled with chapter after chapter after chapter how can a holy God dwell with sinful people how can a holy God dwell with sinful people. That's what we see in Leviticus and all these laws that were very extensive. That's what it's showing us. <clears throat> God uh, desires, purposes to dwell with his people, uh, but he's holy. And so he's put things in place, sac sacrificial systems in order to do that. And as Glad says again, to remove sinful contaminants that defile the worshiper. So again, in order for sinners to have fellowship with God, sin had to be dealt with. In order for a holy God to dwell with sinful people, he has to keep them clean. Right? That's why God instituted sacrificial system. But in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system had a weakness. What was the weakness? The weakness isn't in God, right? But what was the weakness of the system? God knew this. <laughs> What's that? Temporary covering. A temporary covering. Right. It wasn't permanent and it wasn't meant to be permanent. The weakness isn't in God or the system he instituted. The weakness, the kink in the armor was to show that the system itself was only supposed to be a pointer to something better. Someone better, rather. Hosea 6.6 6 says, <clears throat> For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So sacrifices aren't able to fully atone for sin. We see that over and over in the book of Hebrews. It was only supposed to be temporary. 1 Samuel 15, 21 and 22 says, But the people took of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great 
sorry, as the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings as sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than to the fat of rams. So Israel, or the Isaiah 53 tells us that there is a servant that will come who will become an offering for sin. And in the New Testament, God sends the one that he appointed to sin or that he promised to sin. The one who would deal with sin once and for all, not a temporary covering, not a partial, but once for all. Hebrews says that uh, priests would stand daily in the temple making sacrifices. But Jesus, after one sacrifice, sat down at the right hand of glory. The standing of the temples and the sacrifice versus the sitting down of the sun. It shows the completion of the work. There's no need for him to stand daily in the temple, but it's once and for all and it's done. John, the baptizer, as he's preparing the way for Jesus, he sees Jesus coming from a distance and he says what? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb who takes away this in the world. The word John uses to describe Jesus is the intent why God sent him. God's end time wrath was appeased in his son's death. The final lamb. No more sacrificial systems. No more doves. No more bulls. No more goats. This is, it's all done away with because the final lamb has come. And it's God providing for himself the lamb because us giving ours, it was never meant to be enough. It was never meant to be sufficient. So God does the work. Because of this uh, permanent reconciliation between God and humanity is possible. This is the one that Abraham and faith looked to, the one that Moses anticipated, the skull crusher that Adam and Eve were waiting to come. I believe they'll be in the new heavens and new earth with us as they uh, looked to this uh, skull crusher. Christ's death and resurrection paved the way for God to dwell with believers. Jesus is not only the perfect sacrifice, he is also the perfect high priest. Okay? He offers himself up by the Spirit, it says in Hebrews, as the Lamb of God, bearing the sins of all those who believe. Okay. A couple more sections here. To the ends of the earth. Actually, one more section. To the ends of the earth. Any, any thoughts or questions on that last point? A better priest and sacrifice? Okay. To the ends of the earth. The final dimension of Jesus' priestly mission is his fulfillment of the original commission in Genesis 1.28. So God commanded Adam and Eve to expand the Garden of Eden, to be fruitful and increase in number, to fill the earth and subdue it. Since God's presence was confined to the garden, as Eden expands, so does God's glory. Right? The garden was a, a unique place in, um, in, in Eden where God's presence was concentrated. Their job was to expand it. The nation Israel was supposed to mediate God's presence to the nations around them or, in a, or, or among them. But Adam and Eve 
failed to bring God's glory to the ends of the earth and Israel failed. Now, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Let me have someone read that for us. It's often labeled right, the Great Commission. <clears throat> but this Great Commission is very much a part of the original commission in Genesis 1, 28. So someone read Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Okay, so this is very much rooted in a part of Genesis 1.28, that original commission. The glorious presence that dwelt with Adam in the garden and with Israel at Sinai is now with the disciples in a greater way. Christ is the fuller manifestation of God's glory as he is truly God with us, God tabernacling with us. As God, Jesus claims that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, Matthew 28, 16. This idea and proclamation of the exalted power and glory of Christ isn't new, again, to the New Testament. We see this in Daniel, in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. It says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Some of that same language you see in Matthew 28. A prophecy about one like a son of man receiving authority and glory and sovereign power forever, it says in, Dan in Daniel 7. But his authority and power and dominion, he charges, or rather by this authority and power and dominion, he charges his disciples with the great commission. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. <clears throat> so Jesus and this, this great commission, he is the fulfillment of what Adam and Eve and Israel as a nation should have done. He gives this authority to his disciples and says, now go. But God's commission to Adam and Eve and Israel, they, they show up here, they're, they're fulfilled in Christ and as he sends his disciples out to do this work. The disciples are tasked with bringing others into the kingdom so that the nations can also experience a restored image. And since Jesus will go with his disciples, success is guaranteed. So it's a mission that can't fail. The Great Commission is a mission that can't fail. Adam and Eve failed. Israel failed. Christ does not. Right. He does what he's commissioned to do <clears throat> by the Trinitarian power of Christ's resurrection. Christ now rules over two realms, heaven and earth. And his ministry, 
He possessed authority over the earth by fulfilling the law, forgiving sins and so on. But when Jesus conquered Satan on the cross and rose again, he gained possession of another territory, a heavenly realm. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't have it before, but there is a unique bestowal of it in recognition now as he's in his death conquered sin, death and Satan. Revelation 321, it says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, this doesn't mean that he didn't have authority before, but there's a recognition of the bestowal of this authority as he conquers sin and death. As a faithful priest, Jesus promises to go with his disciples to go with you, to go with me, to go with the church, the original 12, um, and the church as the disciples of Christ. And where they go, Christ goes with them. The presence of Christ as mediated by the Spirit in Acts 1.8 empowers the disciples to do what Adam and Israel failed to do, to mediate God's presence to all the regions of the earth. Glad ends this sort of section by saying, As the true temple of God, Christ was on a mission to rid the cosmos of sin and fill it with God's glory. In the wilderness temptation and at the cross and resurrection, Christ dwelt with sin in a definitive manner and decisively broke the devil's grasp on the created order. This is God's cosmos, and he intends on dwelling in it. Christ's role as priest is often neglected in our churches, he comments. We talk of his kingship and his sovereign power, but how often do we consider him as the true dwelling place of God? Do we contemplate Jesus as the ultimate mediator between God and humanity? It's a a, a great question. At the beginning of the last class, I asked this question, do you consider Christ as priest? Uh, Where is that in your thinking about the identity and the work of Christ? We see him as king, often, probably easier, as prophet, because all these verses that point to what Christ spoke in as a fulfillment. But what about priests? Do you have a category of Christ as priest, as sacrifice and high priest, and how God, our our Trinitarian, our God who is faithful, uh, God provides for himself a lamb, is the Lamb of God, Jesus, and cleanses his people and gives us efficient high priests. Um, so I, these things are, as I mentioned last week, hopefully for our encouragement and joy when we think about um, our inability to be good enough, which we won't be, to merit grace, which we can't merit grace, to uh, do enough good things, which we can never do. Even in our preaching the gospel, we should have a category for Christ as priests. You can't do enough good things. No matter how many old ladies you walk across the street, how many soup kitchens you donate at, you know, how many times you, you know, hang out with your little nieces and nephews and cousins, these things don't merit you salvation. Um, but there is a faithful high priest who has merited salvation, and it's Jesus Christ. So even in our gospel, to ourselves and to others, we should have that, that category in place. Okay, any final thoughts, questions? Got about three minutes.
Yeah. And uh, Hebrews also we touched on that. Uh, the context was uh, he's not even in the line of the Levites. Right. Much less he's not in the line of Aaron. Right. The high priest. He's the line of Judah. I was thinking, why should he be? <laughs> you know, those those systems fail. Right. Right. Yep. <clears throat> and if he was part of that system. He would just be pointing to himself. Mm. And it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Right? Yep. So he has to be, he has to transcend that. Right. Amen. To, be, to fulfill all this. Uh, yeah. Uh, yep. Yep. <laughs> right. Yeah. So he's a priest. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever, right? As opposed to earthly priests, which died eventually. Right? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, that's good. Any other thoughts? Questions? Well, we are the temple of God now. Believers. Yep. So that's always interesting. Yeah. Yep, we are made into a temple with uh, Christ himself as the cornerstone. He's building us into a temple. So the spirit which dwelled in the garden which dwelt in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, now dwells in believers as, as the temple of God. So there's that theme there as well. Yep. In Revelation, we see this uh, structure coming down, which is uh, the temple of God, uh, really just the people of God. Uh, so it's really, it's really interesting. That, that, uh, that reality, that glory then, is, it's broken into this age and the Bible says we are even now like you said presently the temple of God yeah that's good <clears throat> any other thoughts questions okay let me pray for us Lord we thank you for your word which is faithful to sanctify us um, which assures to us um, the gospel and the hope of glory that we have in Christ. Um, we thank you for this time to be able to consider your uh, only begotten son as a priest and sacrifice for uh, the people of God, Jesus Christ, as a, as a sacrifice for um, your elect. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of your word and the assurance of, of your promises, which our hours in Christ, we can grasp them, hold them, confess them because of the personal work of Jesus Christ. Lord, um, encourage our hearts through this, I pray, and um, give us a deeper assurance of our own salvation, of our security in you, and that we will be brought to the end despite what happens in our lives here on earth. We are kept in, in your grip, then you will bring us to the end in yourself. We thank you for that, that hope. Uh, ensure us with those promises. In Christ's name, amen.